Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646-716-4972. And now, here is your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. So good to have you with us, everybody. Appreciate you tuning in. It is December 7th, 2015. As Alice reminded me at the beginning of the broadcast, it is the day that lives in infamy, to quote President Franklin Roosevelt. It was one of those days we were attacked in Pearl Harbor. And so, anyway, December 7th, pretty notable day in our history. As time fades, it's amazing how some of the memories can fade. Facing so many threats, you see what happened in San Bernardino this last week, and I tell you, they just realized... Maybe the attacks are still happening. We've got a new round, different enemy, and uh, but it's so important that we stay vigilant. So what do we do? We stay vigilant about the mortgage business, and that's why we're here to help you stay on top of all that is happening in the industry. Today's hot topic will be: Should the Fed be raised? Should they raise the Fed funds rate? And we're going to have with us a special guest, someone who's been on the program. Uh, Logan Motoshami, who is out in California, and we're excited to have him on the line and going to be joining us on the Hot Topic segment. You know, the feds are meeting next week, the 15th and 16th. Joe's going to be, I'm sure, talking about that. Big news coming up, and we've seen some strong farm payroll numbers, and again, all the stuff Joe's going to get into, but is it, are they going to be raising interest rates? Well, you know, when you when you talk to the different ones out there, uh, I, I like going to someone who thinks out of the box and has a unique perspective on things. And, Logan, if you look at what his housing predictions are of all the people out there, all the economists out there, Logan has been the most accurate on predicting where housing, home prices, home inventories, all of this related to housing has been. And so I'm really excited to have him on and talk about his thoughts about will the feds be raising interest rates next week. There's certainly a lot of chatter and much anticipation that they will be. Good to have you with us, everybody. This broadcast is created by mortgage professionals for mortgage professionals. And we are the proud recipient of the Progress in Lending Award, Innovation Award, excuse me. It's uh, good to have our sponsors with us. Also, a special thank you goes to United Guarantee. FHA has changed its rates in January 2015 of this year, but United Guarantee's mortgage insurance premiums for the most products and for most borrowers remain more attractive than FHA's, especially when FHA's looking at some of the changes. I'm sure they're kind of glad about it. They got a lot of market share, more than they had wanted, but uh, and especially with all that's going on with FHA, this is an outstanding alternative. Their performance premium risk-based pricing, which you can get, uh, you can get appropriately, and you can learn more about it at their website, is really key. Most important part is there's faster closing through United Guarantee than through HUD. Uh, you there's eliminates the need for case numbers. The uh, FHA approval under approved underwriters, FHA approved appraisers, the paperwork and packaging that goes into all of that. Uh, their lender paid there's lender paid insurance options uh, as well as unparalleled service. Again, United Guarantee has led the industry with 24 24 hour turnaround and 98 percent of its uh, file submissions, so long as there have been full file submissions. Very important. Good job to United Guarantee. Appreciate them being a sponsor with us. Mortgage insurance is underwritten by Mortgage Guarantee Residential Insurance Company. Also, a special thank you goes to Velma, gets the word out. Electronic notifications that go to all of you. By the way, if you have not received 
are not receiving electronic notification, we're happy to send it to you. Email me at david at TMS, stands for Transformational Mortgage Solutions, david at tms-advisors.com, and I will, so dashadvisors.com, david at tms-advisors.com, and I'll make sure you get on the emailing list. But anyway, Velma stands for Virtual Electronic Marketing Assistant. They're dedicated to helping you provide um, really set it and forget it auto campaigns out to your customers. And uh, I think everyone should be marketing to their existing customers, those past customers. We don't do the best job of that, generally speaking, within our industry, and this would be an excellent service. So they have the set it and forget it campaigns, or they have the campaigns on the fly. You'll be want to check them out. They do a great job. Brett Emler and the team there do a great job. Velma.com, V-E-L-M-A.com, Virtual Electronic Marketing Assistant. Also, our newest sponsor, Motivity Solutions, an industry's leading business intelligence technology in the nation, providing real-time reporting as well as dashboards and scoreboards. The key word is real-time. The fact that you have know exactly what's going on as it's happening it's like a scorecard. I, I mean, it's a scoreboard. We were at the Baylor a Longhorn game this weekend, the Trinitron that's right behind us, the big thing, uh, the big scoreboard. Man, you know exactly what's happening on the field. That's what Motivity is. It is your Trinitron of what's going in, looking into what's going on in the industry. Outstanding uh, mortgage bank business intelligence tool that I think everyone should have. Check it out at MotivitySolutions.com or call them at 303-721-9000. Of course, we say a special thank you to Alice and Joe for being a part of the broadcast each and every week. Andy Shell is not with us. Thank him as well, but he's not with us this week. He has got some allergies hitting him, and his voice is just not good. Um, quick update on conferences that we have coming. Uh, I was last week at the Independent Mortgage Banking Conference. I want to bring it up, and it's a past conference, but it was so well attended. Over 720 independent mortgage bankers and um, vendors there. Outstanding conference, well attended, and uh, it, 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 i got to tell you, uh, the number of people that we caught up with and met there was just really interesting. Of course, the topics are centric around the independent mortgage bankers. I uh, caught up with David Stevens as well as Bill Emerson. Uh, David Stevens recorded an interview with uh, him, and I'm hoping to play that next week on the Hot Topic segment. Also, we have the upcoming Mergers and Acquisitions Workshop, January 21st. That's at the Hilton Phoenix Airport. We also have January 28th, 28th 2016, the Whole Loan Trading Workshop. It's at NBC Suites in downtown Fort Worth. Good to have Joe Farr with us. Joe, what in the world is going on in the market? Seeing a nice rally here uh, in yeah. NBS. Nice big rally. What, what, we're, I haven't yeah. had a chance to check the news. I've been so busy today. What's what's causing all this? We're at the high for the day. We're up 11.30 seconds. Um, you know, there could be a number of features, and I'll, and I'll get back uh, to to the bigger term, longer term view of this, but uh, you know, this morning oil's down, uh, and that's caused stocks to sell off, and some of the rally in MBS can be attributed to uh, to that sell off. The Dow's down a couple hundred points right now, uh, but you know, I think it's better to look at uh, the last few days because I think some of today's movements carry over from what was going on. But if you go back to you know, the end of the day, Wednesday through today, uh, a lot has gone on, right? I mean, there's been the ECB yeah. meeting um, that came out on Thursday morning early, and then, of course, the jobs report that came out Friday morning. And, uh, you know, both of those events caused pretty significant volatility. But if you look at where we were to end the day Wednesday, we're there right now, you know, within a, a 30 second of, of MBS prices. And, you know, within 50 or 60 points on the Dow. So 
a lot of volatility got us right back to where we started. And and part of that is due to, you know, the the real fundamentals didn't change too much. The ECB did come out and they disappointed the market with what they said that they were going to do from a from additional stimulus. And uh, it wasn't as much as people thought. They added uh, six months to the bond buying program, but people were really looking for additional uh, or more bonds to be purchased. And, um, and of course, uh, that disappointed the market, and we sold off MBS prices. Yeah. MBS prices fell. And then Friday came along, and, and it was a better-than-expected jobs report. Uh, the initial reaction was to for MBS prices to drop, but they quickly recovered because, you know, when you look at it, the jobs report was sort of the last, uh, uh, well, I'm kind of getting into what uh, uh, Logan might be talking about, but, you know, it was one of the last events to uh, cause there to be a doubt about the Fed meeting and, and uh, what they'll do at the next Fed meeting. And really the jobs report just uh, took the Fed action from very likely to almost certain that they'll raise yeah. the Fed funds rate. So, you know, there's really wasn't a lot of movement to be made there to to uh, in reaction to a good report. The bigger movement would have been in reaction to uh, a, a report that fell short. Yeah. Yeah. And then since since the ECB meeting, Draghi has uh, uh, been back in the uh, in the news and has uh, reiterated the ECB's desire to do whatever it takes. And, and so he's. Uh, uh, what he what he tried to sell before um, the meeting seemed to be misinterpreted, and and what they did at the meeting was not taken uh, um, you know uh, favorably, and so he's selling again what what he he thinks that the market's looking for, and uh, and that is an easy monetary policy. So, you know, those three days were uh, again a lot of movement, a lot of very important information, but when you stand back we're just about where we started now also last week we had some manufacturing data uh the ism index uh fell to below 50 which is a contraction measure and it was lowest reading since 2009 and uh, it's really getting hammered by the strong dollar and and how that strong dollar is affecting the ability to export goods to foreign countries so um so that's that. Last week, uh, or, or this week, um, it should be a quieter week, right? I mean, there, you couldn't couldn't yes. have the kind of week we had last week. So the calendar does include uh, the JOLTS report tomorrow uh, and the retail sales and PPI on Friday. You know, the retail sales is a very important event, but it would take a very big miss, in my opinion, a very big miss to the downside in retail sales Um for it to have much effect on on the market and what the Fed might do, uh, I, I really uh, well. Let's hear what Logan says, but uh, yeah. uh, should be a, a much quieter week this week. Yes, it should be, and uh, well, I'm, I'm looking also at the Jolts report. I think it's just going to confirm all the other information we received, but uh, th- that's one that I think I'll pay attention to. But retail sales, yeah, if we see a big drop there, big big deal. So thank you so much. Joe, yeah. Appreciate it. Uh, you bet. You feeling ready for the ready for the holidays? I don't know about you, but that's just uh, this one's just creeping up on me. Just way well, I, yeah. It's just the other one just got over, so I guess it is time to transition <laughs> to the next one. 
Yeah, the lights are on. Got to go get the Christmas tree, all that sort of stuff. Joe, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's see what happens. Uh, everyone who is not looking at the data, not looking at the latest economic reports, flying blind, you got to have this data, and you fall and learn how. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to be right back with Paul Malo, Al Salvi, and then Sam Garcia. We'll be right back after this quick, quick break. Looking for that competitive edge? MBS QuoteLine delivers live market coverage for originators. Get up-to-the-minute mortgage market news and analysis as events occur. Get MBS prices as trades happen. Straight to your computer, email, cell phone, or PDA. Know in advance when your investors will reprice. Make better lock float decisions and increase your income. Be the expert your clients expect. And know what's moving interest rates right now, tomorrow, and beyond. MBS QuoteLine, delivering live market coverage for originators. Learn more about MBS QuoteLine today at MBS. MBSQuoteLine.com. MBSQuoteLine.com. 646-716-4972. The Lincoln on Lending Show is back. Here is your host, David Lincoln. Good to have you back with us, everybody. Christmas, man, how can we be getting here so quickly, Paul? Good to have Paul Mala with us of Inside Mortgage Finance, IMFnews.com. Folks, if you're not signed up to receive this email... You're missing out a lot, so check it out, imfnews.com. Paul, good to have you with us. Thank you, Dave. Good to be here. GSE's back uh, buybacks down slightly. Uh, I see Bancroft's article. I'm the one really interested in the, in the article you have posted up here, so uh, especially about the MSR deal. So uh, let's let's go through some of the headlines and hear about the things you're tracking. Uh, you, you also alluded to the New York Times story on Dave Stevens and the NBA and handing over Fannie and Freddie's business to the big banks. Boy, I got uh, five emails on that uh, this morning oh, from, no uh, shall we say, trade group people, but we'll talk about that at the end. Uh, yeah, listen, yeah. GSE buybacks are down uh, $434 million of uh, home mortgages in the third quarter. That's a, a low, by the way. It's it's barely a low, but it's a low since uh, they kept tracking those numbers since the Dodd-Frank Act. Bottom line, listen, loan quality is great, uh, a lot less buybacks, and that's the bottom line. I mean, you know, when you have such amazing loan yeah. quality, the chances of getting a buyback or getting stuck with a buyback, they might ask you to buy it back. But then when you supply documentation and talk to each other, you know, they wipe out those buyback requests. So they keep going down and down, and that's good news for the industry. Uh, IMA, Interactive Mortgage Advisors, that's Tom Piercy's company. Right. He's got uh, several deals out in the last three days. It adds up to about $7 billion. Uh, listen, it's, it's, it's year-end. Uh, banks and, and other companies, non-banks, are selling their MSRs uh, to try and boost profits. Uh, just because these deals are out doesn't mean they're going to close in the fourth quarter, and, and I would guarantee, right. based on uh, how late uh, we are in the year, that these deals won't close until the first quarter. But it just goes to show, you know, a lot of companies are pulling the trigger now. Uh, rates have risen a little bit. Prepayments have slowed. So the MSR sales machine is cranking up once again. Uh, interesting story from uh, Chris Chappelle of our staff. Uh, Fannie is uh, providing financing on uh, the what's called Stytown, the Stuyvesant Town, Peter Cooper Village. Anyone who uh, knows New York or lives in New York and knows anything about uh, affordable rental housing or rent control, that's one of the largest, uh, if not the largest, rent control property in the city. It had an ugly history of, of uh, a bankruptcy and some ugly stuff a couple of years ago. There were new owners. Uh, the whole thing got restructured, and now Fannie's swooping in uh, thanks to Wells Fargo. Uh, Wells is making a loan, and, it, and it's Fannie's largest multifamily loan in its uh, history, $2.7 billion for uh, 
for uh, that uh, 110 building complex on the wow. east side in midtown Manhattan. Uh, interesting story, not just this financing, but the whole history of what happened with uh, Stytown. I, I, if you're interested in rental housing and rent control in Manhattan, you should uh, uh, Google that one and see the history of that deal. Uh, Hatteras is out, a REIT, uh, its first jumbo. Uh, they're probably promising or are promising to be a more active player in the jumbo MBS space. Uh, we have a story about mortgage loan officers and Outlook uh, Outlook piece uh, about the demand next year for hiring. Uh, hiring is obviously slow, but it always does this time of year. That's not surprising. Uh, we continue to hear lo- LOs are going to be in demand as well as executives. So there's a story on the website there, which is traced to our, our weekly publication inside Mortgage Trends. And, of course, short takes, the uh, NBA, New York Times dust-up. Did you read the story today, Dave, uh, in the Times? I saw that. I've been I've been on the phone nonstop, but I've got it up here, and I cannot wait to write it. Give, us, give our readers, <laughs> tease us, give us that, that article, like the book report, so we just all run out and read it. But it, it, uh, I started reading yeah, it. I don't know what to whoa. think. I, I mean, you know, Gretchen Morgan's. Sternstein or Morganson yeah. of the New York Times, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, as I recall, from years yeah. ago. She used to work on the street. Um, you know, I can't always say she's totally understood the mortgage business. And the long and short of it is it portrays, uh, you know, the MBA's role and Dave Stevens' role in particular of, of sort of, you know, <laughs> You know, coming up with a plan first when he was in the administration and then at MBA trying to, you know, do away with Fannie and Freddie and then hand over their business to the big banks. I mean, that's the that's the summary or the spin on it, depending on, on your viewpoint. Uh, you know, I don't know what to think. <laughs> uh, you know, I, you know, he, listen, he, he's, a, he's a trade group president who represents big banks as well as small to medium-sized right. non-banks. And large non-banks, and whatever was going on in those early years, he's a guy as a trade group president. I would say was trying to find to make sure there's a secondary market option for his members, whether it was the GSEs or big banks. And and the way the the story spun, it um, I don't know. I I you know I'm I don't. It's, I don't want to get into it too much. People should read it and make up their minds. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, make their own. Uh, but well, it's unusual. The NBA put out a statement right away saying the whole thing is groundless and baseless and has no merit and is just, you know, it's, you know. But anyway, a bunch of emails. You probably got a bunch this morning about the story. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at my inbox. They're going, what do you make it exactly right? Yeah, what do you yeah, make of this? And, you know, so anyway. Well, it, I it interviewed is David. Is. I interviewed David last week uh, on Thursday, sure. and we're going to be playing that interview next week. Uh, there were some comments he made that, about some things that are going on in the press. He goes, I just, you know, it's it's frustrating. He's out there trying to do, I think, what's in the best interest. Yeah, he's he has the big bankers' interests. He has, he has virtually everyone's interests uh, trying to do that. Uh, in my opinion, he's 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 doing that job of going down that line, and I think he does a decent job of it. Uh, but no question that Gretchen Morganson and uh, uh, Josh Rossner both wrote the book Reckless Endangerment, and um, they're watching that. And I wonder if they think there's a sequel coming out there. I know Josh fairly well, and uh, have talked to Gretchen, but not not real well. Don't know. I know Josh hmm. real well, and he's got some really strong opinions and feelings about things. So Yeah, I, I don't know either one of them. And, and they point out in that column, just real quick, you know, listen, the big banks have been pulling away from the mortgage business. I, they hate the bill. <laughs> a lot of them hate the mortgage business. I mean, you know, they're closing trading desks. They're, they're reducing their originations and servicing. Their their jumbo issuance is, is meager. They just want to put jumbos in portfolio. I mean, 
I don't know. Just uh, you know, just go. People should read the story and, and make up. Read their the own article. Mind. That's but, the bottom yeah, line. Yeah, read the yeah, article. So. Read the article. I started reading it, and then I've gotten nothing but interruptions today. <laughs> sure. Telling me to read the article, getting emails. Hey, Dave, have you read that? And so that's anyway, it's a long article. It's like it is. starts on on the front page, not the business section, the A section of the New York Times, and jumps to a big wide spread in the business section. If you're looking at the print edition, I should say. So yeah, it's, it's you know she obviously spent quite a quite a bit of time on this thing. Yeah, it was. It's something we've been anticipating coming for a while. I've heard this uh, in September. Quite honestly, I heard that this was coming. So, interesting. It's always good to have you on here. Great perspective on what's happening, and appreciate you taking time out of your day to be here with us, Paul. And uh, I just tell, remind everybody, if they're not signed up, uh, go to the website. IMF stands for Industry Inside Mortgage Finance. IMFNews.com. Sign up for their alerts and get this in your inbox every single day. Great stuff, and appreciate you being here with us. Thank you. Good. Appreciate it. Alice Alvey, it's always fun to have you here. And, uh, you know, sorry we had to miss you on the podcast last week, uh, but good to have you here today with us, Alice. Well, thanks, Dave. It's uh, good to be here. Yes, it's, there's always something going on. I was uh, The article is fully available, actually, as you guys were chatting. I pulled it up because uh, I was curious, at, and uh, I would agree with uh, Paul's hesitation on jumping in with, and agreeing with them. <laughs> it's worth reading the article. Um, yeah, anyway, is. I wanted to yeah, I wanted to just jump in and help everybody uh, recognize a couple of things. Another big case that's out there was um, on December 2nd, the Department of Justice settled with Franklin American uh, for $70 million to resolve allegations that have violated the False Claims Act. Now, this had to do with FHA lending that's, you know, long ago back in, uh, you know, 2006 to 2012 loans. And um, my experiences with the company have always been very good, and the staff there and the people are all very good. Um, so you never know exactly, you know, kind of the core, you know, as an outsider. Um, I'm just, my view on this that I want to make sure everybody pays attention to in the details is that there were emails cited in here. So as many of us know with FHA loans in particular, you have to have that separation between production and sales. And a lot of folks think, well, as long as I have it on an org chart and it's showing that my underwriting manager is reporting up to someone else, you know, operationally, and it's not reporting to sales, but that's really what HUD is looking for. What was interesting in this case and some of the details that they provided was that FHA used emails, the Department of Justice used emails that showed going up the chain from account executives up to senior management and then rolling back down to underwriting about quotas, right, that if underwriter, underwriters need to meet these quotas, everyone needs to be hitting this number each and every day, and that this pressure coming from sales to meet quotas was circled up and back down around, which is a violation of HUD requirements of separation. And at one point, the email uh, chain is even coming from an underwriting manager. So the pressure of sales is now basically being interpreted as being a part of that separation that you all need to be thinking about. So two points here. One is making sure, you know, not underwriters can produce this, all produce the same, and we know that those are the challenges and different levels of, you know, speed at which we work. In the end, it's all about quality. But that you can't, you know, you can't use that pressure against the underwriters to meet quotas to, uh, because you've got to be careful with HUD. And I don't think this is just a HUD thing. I think really CFPB would take issue with some of this in terms of is it impacting quality or is sales influencing underwriting. And then the second point is emails, right? Here we go again, another right. 
front page example on does your team know how to communicate in email, what's allowed, what's not allowed, and that all of this got pulled into the case and is now public information. Um, so emails were obtained from uh, underwriters um, in another example in the same case where junior underwriters were used to clear conditions. And there were emails between the team members, you know, apparently. Again, I'm just going by from what is published by the Department of Justice supplement to this that was um, easily searchable on the Internet, um, that they didn't, that even junior underwriters might have emailed saying, you know, I don't agree with this system either. The underwriters' QC responses and rebuttals, right, when the underwriters uh, responding to a QC rebuttal, QC says, hey, you guys made a mistake on this file, and the underwriter's coming back saying, well, I didn't make the mistake. This junior underwriter made the mistake. Oh, well, that's a red flag that you don't have enough controls in your systems because even your own team members are telling you that the junior teams are making mistakes and they need to get caught and trained and, you know, uh, have the right measures in place to get the quality back up. So two areas within this that I think are a great heads up for everybody uh, in terms of understanding the communication, uh, understanding the boundaries, especially with FHA for, you know, sales and what constitutes sales interference within underwriting. And then, of course, um, always making sure that the people who are reviewing the loans are qualified because this junior underwriter role that very is not uncommon. It's a very common practice uh, to be able to add some efficiency to underwriting. really needs to be structured well, set up properly, so that the junior underwriters aren't doing too much uh, and their work is monitored for the quality and uh, meeting the, your, you know, the requirements of FHA in particular, who doesn't like junior underwriters touching those files, only the DE. So heads up to everybody. There were some valuable lessons worth going to reading in that uh, particular case. Um, one other good note is uh, CFPB did uh, publish its rulemaking agenda. Now, they called it the fall agenda, and it came out at the end of November. So to me, that's a little late. That's not fall in Michigan. That's officially winter. <laughs> so nonetheless, the good news is we're not on it. <laughs> So that's what is the good news. It's all about student loans, credit cards, other stuff, and uh, for once we're not, you know, on the front page. Now, they are auditing. They are out there auditing lenders. We're scooping up that kind of information on what those companies are finding. seems to be an MSA focus. Uh, but uh, in any case, at least on the agenda, we're not on it for right now. Yay! So my last Yay. words, go Michigan State! <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. I knew that. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> Even though I'm a U of M mom, uh, <laughs> you got to congratulate Michigan yeah. State for a great win. Well, good sportsmanship there with your crosstown rival. It's good. Yeah, anytime Michigan's up there in the news in a positive way in sports or any other way, it's uh, great. I'm looking forward to the interview with uh, Bill Emerson, of course, from Michigan, your hometown hero there, and he and Dan Gilbert rebuilding downtown. And uh, very excited yeah. about that upcoming interview. Uh, and. Uh, and of course, with him as the president of the NBA, it's the, the, the context in which we're interviewing him and getting his thoughts on it. But also, we'll be talking more about leadership. But you've got a lot of things going on in Michigan. And I got at, to ask to speak again at your annual conference in August this year. So it's a real opportunity to get out of the hot Texas heat in August and get up there. So I want to start promoting that conference right now, tell people to get up there. It's always a great conference whether I'm speaking or not. But Alice and I will be there and looking forward to it. Alice, thanks so much for being here with us again, giving us an update on everything that's going on. And uh, looking forward to having you uh, on into with uh, Logan's interview and uh, getting some of your perspective on that as well. Folks, we're going to be right back with Sam Garcia. He cover some of the headlines he's tracking. Good to be, have you with us. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. 
If you have questions about mortgage regulations, Indicom Mortgage U has free answers. If you need ideas about how to reinvent your organization, Indicom Mortgage U will share great ideas. When you need help at any step of the loan process, give us a call or send an email. The Indicom team of experts have been helping mortgage players from origination through servicing for over 30 years. Your success is our focus. Whether it's a quick question or long-term support, portfolio, conventional, or government lending, it's a competitive market. So let Indicom Mortgage U give you the edge. Good to have you with us, everybody, and uh, also always fun to have Sam Garcia with us. Sam, uh, good to have you on the line, my friend. Hope, nice hope to be the, uh, here on this beautiful yeah. day in Texas. <laughs> it is. Speaking of that, my wife was grousing the fact that it's December and we're going to have some degree. We've got some weather this week in the 80s. We don't want to say that too loud in front of Alice, but she'll be groaning. But, uh, <laughs> but the reality is we've got I love that. That's why I moved to Texas. I love this warm weather in the middle of it. Picking out a Christmas tree and flip-flops and shorts is my idea of Christmas. It's holiday joy. So anyway, let's get over to the what's on the headlines, my friend. What are you tracking? Well, uh, I just wanted to touch on that New York Times story real quick, and that is uh, I, I picked up three points that they were trying to make, regardless of which side of the issues you stand on. Uh, one of the issues that she wrote about was the revolving door between government and banking, uh, you know, going yeah. from government to lobbying. And then another one was uh, whether lobbyists were advocating when they really shouldn't have been. Um, and then finally, uh, how small banks will be hurt by big banks taking GSE business if, if in fact, Fannie and Freddie, you know, were put to rest. So uh, those are the three points I think she's trying to make, uh, again, regardless of where you stand, but uh, it is an interesting story. Um, we put out our mortgage market index, and that was up 28% last week, which is no big wow. surprise since it followed uh, Thanksgiving, and we don't do any seasonal adjustments. Um, that index, of course, is based on average per-user rate locks by clients of open close. But what was interesting was that uh, ARM activity soared 63%, kind of reflecting uh, that rates were going up towards the end of the, the survey. And I've seen that in my uh, career where, uh, you know, when we see rates start to rise, uh, people jump into arms just to kind of capture what's left of low rates out there. Um, on that, uh, we talked. I heard you talking earlier about the employment report, um, which, of course, right. was relatively strong. Uh, in the mortgage sector, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that non-bank mortgage jobs were down by just over 1,000 jobs in October. And although there was a little bit of an increase in what's called real estate credit jobs, it was the mortgage broker jobs that took a, uh, took a dip there. Um, and, of course, we uh, do an estimate, and using the, the BLS data along with market share data, we estimate that uh, the total industry had about 588,500 people working in it uh, as of October, and that includes 229,000, just a little bit over, in job, mortgage jobs at banks, another 60,500 uh, positions at credit unions, and then the uh, 298,800 jobs that are non-bank jobs. So that's our current estimate of mortgage banking employment. Um, Freddie Mac released its monthly uh, summary of operational results. Its purchases and issuances uh, were reported to be 15% lower in October, which left it with $28.4 billion in purchases and issuances. Uh, more importantly, its 90-day residential delinquency rate fell to 1.38%. Uh, that's the lowest that it's been since October 2008, uh, right about the time they were taken over and thrown into conservatorship. Uh, one really interesting story last week, 
that we covered was uh, that Quicken Loans founder Dan Gilbert told Reuters that uh, the company is considering abandoning FHA lending altogether or possibly scaling back. So it be interesting to see what happens there. Of course, they're in a battle, a legal battle, battle with the Justice Department um, over yes. FHA loans. Citadel Servicing Corp. Uh, announced a wholesale subprime program that goes to 90% loan-to-value and uses bank statements to verify income. Uh, that sounds like a subprime of the past. But uh, FICO scores can be as low as 500 on those loans. So it uh, be interesting to see how they do with that. we got a lot of interest in that story, and rightly so. Um, the National yeah. Credit Union Administration reported that active credit union count, the number of credit unions fell to 6,090 in the third quarter from 6,350, which continues a long-term trend of uh, consolidation in the industry. But the uh, credit unions at the same time increased their mortgage, first mortgages outstanding by 10% from a year ago to $360 billion during this last uh, quarter. Um, bankruptcy filings were reported. Um, we uh, reported that the file consumer bankruptcies fell to 63,223 in November from a, a close to 68,000 a month earlier, but they were up from just over 60,000 a year earlier. So a little bit of mixed uh, data on bankruptcies. And uh, finally, uh, FHA endorsed uh, 4,023 home equity conversion mortgages in November. Uh, that's data we got from Reverse Market Insight. And that was 7% down from the prior month. And, in fact, uh, HECM production has been down each month since August. So kind of had a, a little bit of a trend going there this year at least. So. But uh, those are our headlines for the, the last week, at least some it, of them. So. Some of them, yeah. There's a lot more on here. Also, I noticed you have the mortgage video uh, news. I think that's excellent. I like that. I mean, when you get to the point where you get tired of reading, go, go catch some of the videos at the bottom of your site there. Excellent stuff. Especially that John Oliver one. You remember that one? Uh, yeah, the, the foreclosures. That was hilarious. Yes, there was some. You've got some great ones up here. I encourage people to check out your website. If you're not signed up, check it out. MortgageDaily.com. Go check it out, or get a hold of Sam at two one four five two one thirteen hundred. You can email Sam at samgarcia at mortgagedaily.com. Sam, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate you listeners being with us, and we look forward to uh, getting into a discussion next on will the feds raise interest rates. That's the big topic, and we're going to be getting there next. Have uh, We'll be right back after this brief break. Mortgage Banking Solutions is the preeminent management consulting firm to the residential mortgage lending industry. No other firm in the U.S. offers the menu of services or the level of expertise to the industry. If you're looking for help converting from best efforts to hedging or need help with bookkeeping to know your profit per loan, if you are interested in making the transition from broker to banker, or if you just need a roadmap for success, Mortgage Banking Solutions' primary focus is to enable executives to take their business to the next level and guide them down a path towards success and profitability. With over 300 combined years of experience in all facets of mortgage lending, the Mortgage Banking Solutions team of professionals has the expertise and know-how to help you accomplish your goals. New warehouse lines of credit, broker-to-banker transitions, transitioning to hedging, financial and accounting services, or meeting your capitalization needs. If you need help with these or any other aspects of your business, please contact a Mortgage Banking Solutions sales team to see how we can help you at 512-977-9900. It's 512-977-9900. Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. 
just got an email that said, Dave, are you, aren't, did you resign from Mortgage Bank Solutions? You're still playing their ad? Hey, i got a great relationship. Those are good friends of mine over there, and they've they got a lot of great services. So, yes, I did leave the firm, and, yes, I did start a new company called Transformational Mortgage Solutions, uh, but still have a very good relationship with those guys over there, and we'll continue to have them participate in the radio prog- program. We're so fortunate to have with us again Logan Motoshami. Logan is, uh, you know, uh, I, you know, I don't know if we should call you Logan a frustrated economist or whatever, but I mean, you definitely take some contrarian positions out there, or at least some positions that challenge the the current status quo of thinking that's out there. And we're really pleased to have you join us again on the broadcast. How you doing, Logan? Good, good, good to be here too. Well, it, you, you look at the big topic as as I was thinking of what do we what's the hottest topic that's going on right now? It's an anticipation of what the Federal Reserve done is going to do. Now, there was a lot of anticipation of the Federal Reserve in September, and you were one of the ones, as was I, that the Federal Reserve most certainly is going to be raising interest rates, and that didn't happen. So, what is the probability? Not that you can guess what the Federal Reserve is going to do, but I mean, just looking at what's out there, that then what was happening and the, the economic data we had leading up to September uh, meeting, and now the, the economic compared to the economic data that's leading up to this meeting next week. You know, should we? Uh, is is this really a done deal, or could we be surprised again? I, I think there's nothing really different about the economics here in the U.S. compared to what happened in September. Uh, and in the next Fed meeting, I believe in September, um, more of the global issues, the stock markets around the world were declining, and the Fed flinched on that and decided not to uh, uh, raise a quarter point. But I don't think it has anything to do with U.S. economics or the U.S. economic story whatsoever. So, you know, we, we follow the bond market, especially on the short end, uh, to see where the Fed rate hike will happen. And really, for me, following the two-year note and going above uh, 0.8%, 80%. That was the key metric for me, and we're well above that now. You know, the marketplace has... Repeat has that again. What metric was it again that you... What the, metric was it that you... Two, the two-year note, really, any short-term uh, bond yields have kind of priced in rate hikes for a while now. If right, you look right. at the three-month, six-month, one-year, the two-year, the dollar... They've already they've already done half the Fed's work for them, and this has been going on for about 18 months. So the marketplace has already priced in the Fed rate hike. I think what you have is you have this kind of tribalism economic war between the tribalism economic war. That's good. I like that. And, yeah, you have this anti-Fed group and you have this pro-Fed group, and they're just sitting there fighting each other all the time. But if you actually follow data and follow the bond market and follow the dollar, it's the rate hike was. Is being priced in, and to me, there's three rate hikes priced in by the dollar and the bond market. So, you know, I think the concern is people think that well, as soon as the Fed's going to hike rates, the dollar is going to explode higher. The dollar has already exploded higher. Uh, higher. The history of the dollar and the Fed rate hikes is that the dollar usually makes its biggest percentage move before the first rate hike has happened, and it's done that again. And I don't think a lot of people follow that side of the Fed rate hike equation. And I was never in the group that the Fed were, should or, or would raise rates until about four or five months ago. Because when you look at all the economic data, unemployment rate, uh, where core CPI inflation is, not headline, uh, where the jolt 
for the job openings. We've got five and a half million job openings. We're roughly missing about 2.9 million prime age workers. So we've got a two million uh, a gap between job openings and what we're missing from the previous uh, housing bubble top. The ECI wage inflation index, if you, if the, what the Fed tracks is wage inflation for, for workers, is already basically where it was in 2004 when the Fed started its rate hike, but that was from a 1% Fed funds rate. So I think the question is, do we look at zero interest rate policy as emergency interest rate policy? Because our economy is nowhere, anywhere where it was you know, when we were in a state of emergency, or is this the real natural rate now? Are we, and if you look at the 34-year yeah. trend of rates, it's been falling. Inflation has been falling and the, his, the history of U.S. interest rates from 1900 and on has been low rates, except for two times in the last, you know, right. 120 years, you know, World War II and, you know, going, going into the 1980s where, you know, we're rebuilding Germany and Japan and we had oil inflation. The history of rates has been, is really low. So I think this is just a natural Let's, low rate. Yeah, we're yeah, I, we're definitely. I think this is there's there's several debates going there's several debates going on here. First of all, we have the debate of you know should we have quantitative easing you know into infinity. In other words, are we entered a, a, a market or a, a global economic scenario that we're it to, for us to stay remain competitive in the market, keep our dollar in position? Do we really need to have you know just ongoing quantitative easing? And uh, I would love to get your thoughts on, it. and then also the thought about the global economics. You look at what China's doing; they, you know, basically have quantitative easing going on. You listen to what's going, and Joe talked about uh, ECB. And by the way, Joe, I'm going to come to you next year, right after they get a response to this question with some questions, so you could tee up your questions, Joe. Uh, but I'm I'm really interested in, in in the the global economics, the pressure that's on the Fed to keep Q quantitative easing moving. And uh, someone that says, what's your thoughts on that? And I said, I think we're going to see a rate increase, increase in December or March, and then immediately or very shortly thereafter, we're going to go right back into some round of quantitative easing because of global pressures. Thoughts on all of that, Logan? Here, here's the thing on, on QE. And I think QE was just a wasted experiment. Um, now, in regards to that, in terms of I agree, by the, way. Uh, the American – economy collapsing. QE ended last October. And what I call these anti-American pro-gold U.S. bears, they were so adamant that the stock market would collapse, the America would go back into recession. QE never had that much of a positive effect, so why would it have a negative effect? If you look at the data, instead of having some self-interest emotional economic vested belief, every time QE ended, rates fell. The only time rates actually went up ever was when QE went into place. It was a wasted experiment because rates yeah, would have been low anyway. And it's just QE ended in, in October of last year. There's, there's no recession. There's nothing. So it didn't have any upside and it's not going to have any downside. So the, 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 if you look at the people who are telling you QE4 is going to happen, they're usually pro gold bugs. They've been calling for a recession for seven years. Everything they have said for the last seven years has been a, a mitigating disaster. It, I, I don't think you should be listening to people who are saying the word QE4 because they don't understand, I think, what QE didn't or did do because it was it was a wash. It, it didn't do anything. It was sure, a wasted yeah. $4 trillion experiment. Yeah, 
we should have done a one and done, as they said in that one podcast I referred over to you. But uh, Joe Farn, let's get you in on this discussion, yeah. and then I'll head over to Alice. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, let's let's stay on QE because one of the one of the seldom discussed aspects of QE is the ongoing reinver- reinvestment of uh, payoff, and uh, those proceeds are are such that the Fed is still buying about twenty billion a month of uh, MBS, right. which liquidity. when you look at the overall, I mean that's uh, that's twenty percent. And what the Fed has said in the past is that they will not change their bond that that reinvestment program until at least after they have started uh, hiking the Fed funds rate. So I, I I just ask, will that be a significant event? Do you think? Logan, when they do make that announcement that we're no longer going to reinvest? No. And I and I think that there's bigger forces at play in terms of uh, the MBS cycle and the interest rate cycle that outweigh what the Fed has done. Um, and, it, and it goes back to what I originally said, is that people actually believe that QE lowered rates, and it didn't. And if you just look at when QE started and when it didn't start and when they started the MBS, I wish we could go back in time and actually just disavow it, and probably everything would have stayed the same. Um, now, we initially needed to get rates lower when the, when the Great Recession happened, and it was kind of stalling at that point, so you can make a case that QE1 needed to start. But basically, halfway into QE1, rates were falling, and there's bigger things that play. More, more important is that demographic deflationary aspects around the world are pushing rates lower. The commodity boom has collapsed. We're an aging society all over the world. Older people don't spend that much money. Younger people do, and there's the problem. That we're, the entire world is getting older, and this is where the consumption-based factor is coming in. And the dollar has just basically showed some of these economies who are one-trick ponies relying on their you know, currency and commodities to keep them going. It has exposed the flaw in the world economy, and it's just keeping rates low. And I don't, I, I'm, I subscribe to the fact that rates can be low for decades. You know, whether the ten years at one and a half, two and a half, or three and a half, I don't see any kind of normalization of rates in the historical presence, because we're going to have a good young demographic profile coming up in the next decade. But the world is flush with old people, and old people don't spend as much. And countries like Japan and Germany are stuck in demographic deflationary spirals. And this is why Germany is trying to take as many refugees as they can, because it's simple economics. You know, older people don't spend much; younger people do. And this is one of the reasons why rates are low all over the world. You know, Sweden's negative. Half the two-year notes in Europe are negative right now. And that's, that's the bigger picture in terms of the rate story. And I think QE got mixed up into this whole debate that it kept rates low. And, and if you look at the data, it was the exact opposite. That's fascinating. Uh, Joe, anything else to, right at this point? Uh, uh, well, let's go to uh, Alice, and I'd like to come back. Yeah, good, good. Alice, let you jump in here. Okay, so um... – QE is is not really the driver of it. It's more uh, global uh, conditions. So, is it just all false then? Is that what, is that what I'm hearing? Uh, that you know we we can rates aren't going to go up. We've already accounted for it. And um, when the Fed makes a yeah, move, we're going to be yeah. yeah. If there's another yeah, rate hike, you're saying if you if you if you look at when QE ended uh, last year, 
And uh, uh, basically, when the taper started, rates started to fall off. In fact, if you actually look at the data, every time QE ended, the rates fell, and it never really proceeded higher. The taper tantrum uh, that happened in mid-2013 was a, kind of an overcrowded trade, and everybody you know, outside the U.S. was getting out of their positions. And then it just came really, really back down. We, we tested that 10, 3.04% on the 10-year, and we went all the way back down to 160, which has been my level of 10-year rate predictions for two years now. Um, there's nothing going on except deflationary factors here in America and around the world, and it's pushing rates forward. Look at where oil is right now. Okay, a lot of these uh, currencies are going with oil. It's deflationary, deflationary, deflationary aspects. We are at a 34-year trend of rates going lower, and now we have this commodity crash around the world. And it's very difficult for the U.S. to, to be that uh, divergent on their yields compared to uh, what's going on in Europe and Japan and everything. So, yes, the two-year notes in the U.S. and U.K. are much higher than what they are in Japan and Germany, but we cannot deviate that much from what's going on around the world, and it's deflationary pressures as an aging society grows, consumption gets less, and this is what the world is facing right now. It's something that doesn't, it still does not get enough economic love or attention, but those are really strong drivers of interest rates because QE ended last year and rates are still low. We have not gone anywhere close to testing the highs of 2013. Where do you see rates going? I mean, just your, are, we, are we going to stay in this range? I mean, assuming the Fed follows through, are we going to be staying right in this range we're in right now? What's your you know, my, my prediction for 2015 was that the 10-year would be in a range between 160 and 304, and we tested 160, got as close to what, about 1.64, which is about 3.5% for mortgage rates. I don't see that changing next year. Um, we could have short-term rates move, and the long end of the uh, uh, of the bond market might not move that much higher. In fact, in some cases, it'll go lower. And we've seen that already. We've seen the we've seen the three month, six month, one year, two year make big moves for the last few years, and the long end not making that much move because demographic deflationary factors are keeping rates low because there's just not that much consumption going on to create inflation. And a lot of the inflation we'll see in the next decade is because our young workforce will be coming online, and younger people spend more. They'll create households. They'll buy refrigerators, appliances, homes. They'll, they'll, they'll do more things to create inflation here, but not this cycle. This cycle, prime working age labor force peaked in 2007. We're only slowly getting back up there again. So we just had too many deflationary factors here and around the world to have rates go up higher. If we were to hear that the Fed does not raise Fed funds rate next week, what are the consequences of that? Well, I mean, it's they've really, really portrayed now to the marketplace that they're going to raise. I mean, and in the last, in the last, in the, you know, in September, excuse me, um, you know, the, the two years was just hovering right at that key level, and and you know, the, the world stock markets were falling, so they blinked then, but it would be. I would question the validity of what they're saying, you know, in terms of what they're telling the marketplace, because really the, the short end of the of the of the yield curve are, are screaming rate hike. So I, I it would right. it would shock me even more that if they say we're not raising because it's Christmas or or something like that, because 
the, the marketplace is saying rate hike full force more than I've ever seen ever in this cycle. So I, I would be right. absolutely shocked if they don't if we follow don't have what one. the marketplace is doing. Uh, remember, one thing is that core inflation is running at 1.91%. That's what they follow. They don't follow headline. People make the mistake of saying headline inflation needs to be at 2%. That's not true. Core inflation needs to be near 2%. We're basically – they're actually service X energy – Service inflation is running at 2.8% now. That's the high of the cycle. We're importing a lot of deflation from China, Japan, and Europe. But here, it's not, it's not, as, it's not as bad as the world economies are right now. I want to call everyone's attention to your blog. You have a blog. It's uh, Logan Motoshambi, and that's – I want to spell the last name for those that might struggle with that. It's M-O-H-T-A-S-H-A-M-I, Logan Motoshami. Dot com. You can check it out. He's got a great blog here that he comments on. Lots of grass, really well documented. It's, I mean, it's, it's thoughts that he has, but it's really well documented, in fact. And I want to call attention to the your current blog post, No Housing Nirvana in This Cycle. Give us a quick rundown of what this what you're saying in this blog because I'm really fascinated with this current housing. Everyone, uh, you know, everyone's saying I'll give you a little prelude, and I want you to go into speak to this. Everyone's saying that it's inventory, inventory, inventory. We've been hearing that consistently out of the National Association of Realtors. Uh, Lawrence Young has been saying this, their chief economist. But I found and I talked to you over the weekend about some other articles that said it has nothing to do with inventory. It's all about price. I mean, inventories are low. I mean, there's reasonableness to that. But um, but it's, it's this current housing cycle and the struggling with our home sales being disappointing, coming in lower than expectation, has other factors into it. Speak to that. You know, it's when I first started writing in 2010, I had one simple core thesis, and it was that this cycle, this economic cycle, we would simply will not have enough qualified home buyers in America to have a real recovery. If we look at the seven-year trailing data, Mortgage purchase applications have gone nowhere. 2014 and 2015 are the worst years ever recorded on the NBA Mortgage Purchase Application Index, once adjusting to population, and it's happening at the lowest interest rate curve uh, post-World War II. The fundamentals of what you need for a strong housing demand curve in terms of Main Street America buying homes of mortgages, you had none of that in place in this cycle. Some of that's demographics. Some of that is, you know, the housing bubble debt had to be deleveraged. Uh, a lot of it has to do with incomes and assets. And, you know, the, the No Housing Nirvana article was basically showing the point that you have people on TV and from housing shops that have a vested interest in promoting an economic ideology. But if you actually look at the data, which most people don't do, most people work and, you know, that's not their jobs, none of it actually is true. But they'll they'll make excuses for demand. They'll never say demand is weak, or they'll never say demand is is soft. But um, inventory from 2012 to 2015 on an annual basis is actually higher than any point from 1999 to 2005. So if people are saying saw that inventory, I saw that in the graph. That's amazing. And it's the NAR graph too. That's why I found it amusing. You know, you just take the NAR data and then take what they actually say. It's actually, it's actually quite funny. But um, we have more inventory now than we did in those years where we had one and a half million mortgage, more mortgage buyers. And part of that is demographics. We had a better demographic profile from 1996 to 2007. We don't have that this time around. It'll get better in years 2020 to 2024. But, but. 
there's there's excuses that just don't make sense because if inventory is a problem now, then why wasn't it a problem back then where sales were just booming? So Scream. causation, yeah, causation, correlation, representation. Look at the data. Be the detective. Don't be the spinner. And I, I look at housing goals or housing people as as much as I look at gold bugs. They're very similar in sentence structure and interesting, interesting. They, because the data isn't there, but they'll make up some excuse or some reason why X is going to happen. Why? You know, it's just it's just not the truth. It, this cycle was a demand cycle. We lack the demand. Period. So there. So what you're saying? There, so you're saying there's an inventory problem, but it's not of homes; it's of buyers. No, well, I mean, it, it, yeah. So it's simply, it's always been about the buyers. Now, the, the inventory is still low enough to where home prices can't decline. I think there, there's there's a difference between the two. There's plenty of inventory to buy. That's that's not an issue. But inventory for home prices to decline typically need over six months. And you typically yes. need distressed sales to come into the market. We're not there yet. In fact, if you look at the data, this century we've never had over six months inventory as an annual month's basis outside of the housing bubble years. Something that never gets mentioned out there, but we've never had it unless you had a recession. The cycle is going into its eighth year next year. And what happened? Inventory has declined year over year in places. Why? Because if you actually model out off of the affordability index, which I actually don't agree with because I think it's outdated, an, a, an average home buyer would need at least conservatively 28 to 33% equity to sell and move up to put 20% down. And that's why I don't like the affordability index because it assumes everybody has a 20% down 745 go score, which means your credit debt use is, is below 5% and the starting debt take commercial is 25. That's just, that is just an outdated model. So it goes back to actually what I disagree with, with Chairman uh, Yellen. She says two things always in her Fed meetings. Um, one, housing is affordable, and two, lending is tight. I could not disagree more. Without analysis, on both fronts, yeah, on both accounts. Absolutely, I, I, and this is why they missed it, and they're missing it again. Too. I mean, this year, new home sales. People every day you hear home sales are great, home sales are great. New home sales adjusting to population are down, I think, sixty-one percent to where they were in nineteen sixty-three. The last time it was this low was in the uh, recession in the early eighties when we had north of ten uh, percent uh, interest rates. New home sales this year are going to have its third straight decline in terms of missing estimates again. And if it wasn't for the fact that we had a big miss in new home sales last year, home sales this year, new home sales would be negative year over year. You can't get the information really from people on TV or these housing people because they have an, they have an invested agenda either in some builder trade or they're part of the NAR and NHP, and that's 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 just how that's how it's done. But if you look at the purity of data, if you look at the math, facts, and data of something, you can see that this has been the worst demand curve post World War II, and it's happening at the lowest interest rate curve post World War II. That's, you yeah, need so better demographics. You need more wages. Yeah. Yeah. So until we get this next generation in and buying, we are just. Uh, we're, we're going to stay in at, at these levels. Joe, I want to come back to you. I'm looking. Yeah, we already are out of time, but Joe, let's get any questions you have. That Well, uh, two two quick questions. What's going to happen between now and 2020, 2024 to, to cause that improvement? And then you mentioned adjusted for population. Can you kind of uh, walk through what you're doing when you make those adjustments? Well, basically, you take what how much the population has grown in America – 
And I think the, the, the big difference between, let's say, someone like myself and maybe a housing analyst is that demographics matter, uh, prime working age matter. Uh, we need more people ages 28 to 42 working. And in this cycle, we didn't have that. That kind of, uh, that kind of peaked in 2007. The Gen X got blown out because a lot of their loans were fraud and, you know, they're going to be, they were foreclosing and short sailing. So that, that, that group is, is, is knocked out of the housing cycle. But come years 2020 to 2024, if you look at demographics of census population, ages 12 to 29 are very big. Ages 21 to 25 are the biggest in America. Age 24 is the biggest in America. These people are renters in this cycle. They're not going to be home buyers. But come 2020 to 2024, you're simply going to have more people at the home buying age from where we are right now. And it's a very low bar we're working from. We're, look, we're looking at the lowest adjusted to population sales ever. So we're just going to have simply more of them. So even if the demand curve is, is just as weak, you're just going to have more people in that age group. And really, um, it's, it's basically going to be based, the core fundamental uh, housing cycle has, has to have people rent first. They've got a date, they've got a mate, they've got to marry. And then once they start having kids, that's when you get the home buying cycle. That's still years away. These young kids are still going to be, I mean, we have the highest percentage of 18 to 34 living at home, ages 25 to 34 living at home. <laughs> These aren't home buyers. These are going to be renters at best for a few more years. And then you're going to see what matters to a housing cycle. Prime working age people, ages 28 to 42, who have the capacity to own the debt because all the fake loans are gone, thankfully. And incomes and assets matter more than economic assumption theories or inventory, you know, claims, stuff like that. I'm listening to this and I'm, I'm chuckling because there's. I just love your perspective and I'm looking at your blog again. I'm encouraging everyone to go check it out. Uh, we're out of time, folks, so we're going to have to exit the broadcast, but it'd be Write down this uh, blog address, Logan Motoshami, M-O-H-T-A-S-H-A-M-I, LoganMotoshami.com. Check it out. There is some really good content in here, and I guarantee you you're not reading it. He's taking on, Logan, you're taking on the the, the folks uh, in in uh, at the Wall Street Journal, Nick Timoros. You're taking on a number of economists. You're taking on the NRA. I mean, it's, excuse me, NRA, excuse me. <laughs> Yeah, NR, the National Association of Realtors, NAR. Excuse me. Uh, so you're 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 really NAR and all the, the the conventional thinking. You challenge it, and I love what you're doing here. It's a great work and something people need to be taking into their into account when they're looking at everything that's happening in the market. Appreciate you taking time, Logan, to be with us, and uh, encourage everyone to head out to your blog post. Any parting comments, Logan? Um. Uh, just that uh, don't be afraid of the recession in 2016. If you're, if you're looking for recessionary economics, you follow three simple rules. Uh, unemployment claims have to be above 300K. Uh, the LEI, leading economic indicator, also has to fall four to six months uh, with that. And the Fed rate hike cycle has to be on. Okay? I think that was the biggest mistake for all the kind of recessionary calls in the last seven years. Good stuff. Appreciate it. Joe Farr, let's run real quickly to you so I can look at the markets. Look like we're staying pretty close to the highs of the day, correct? Yeah, we're still up uh, still up 10. That's just a little off the highs. Good. Appreciate it. Logan, thank you so much for joining us. Allison, Joe, thank you for being a part of the broadcast today, and we thank you, our listeners. Our special thank you goes out again to our sponsors. We appreciate each one of them. Again, United Guarantee, Velma, 
as well as our friends at Oh, excuse me. Uh, yes, we got that. Uh, Motivity Solutions. So good to be with you. Appreciate you all. I got noticed that we're going to hope to have David Stevens on next week, commenting, I'm sure, up on the article as well as the, uh, the, the recording I had of him. Good to have you with us. Have a great week, everybody. This has been Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lincoln of Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. Today's guests were Joe Farr from MBS Line, Andy Shell of Mortgage Banking Solutions, and Alice Alvey, President CMB of Mortgage U. Come by next week and thank you for listening. 